That's right. You are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse for the latest news, views, and opinions here in our great region of Windsor and Essex County. We remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show or those of our co-hosts do not necessarily reflect the views of any media outlets or any political parties or organizations. We are recording on Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, approximately 7.15 p.m. Please remember to like our Facebook page and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. With that being said, my name is Al Tashuba. I'm co-hosting and joined remotely with Daniel Lablisser and Christine Brooks. And we're talking about COVID again, but this time it's in a positive way. We are now starting to see various measures, sanitary measures lifted. And uh, one of them is going to be, of course, the mask rules. According to Dr. Ahmed, he says the region is now currently 25% fully vaccinated. He would like to see this increase before masks are no longer uh, mandatory. Uh, but in the outdoor setting, I think you see that people um, are already uh, using it less. Um, people who, who you know, or maybe people who you are friends with and family versus people who are completely strangers in public space, private space, that makes a difference, of course. Um, but uh, a lot of people are, are really saying, well, until the, they see the numbers uh, of vaccinated people increase to about 75%, they will be uh, continuing to wear the mask. I think it's an excellent idea. I think we want to prevent the highly uh, volatile and uh, virulent uh, variants to, uh, to spread. We know that there are some that are much more so, including the Delta one, which uh, has uh, shown to be much more uh, transmittable and also more deadly. So I think uh, yes, the numbers are fantastic. We now only have uh, three new cases uh, reported, and we still have three people in intensive care. So we can't forget about these people who are still uh, catching it and catching it in a way that is life-threatening. And I think we have to remind ourselves um, to, to protect the, the, the people who are most vulnerable in our community. Daniel, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think that the uh, the health unit's about right with this, with starting to look at when we can uh, relax the mask mandate. I mean, if we're talking about 50% fully vaccinated to relax the max, mask mandate, I think we're going to be there in about two weeks with, with, with where we're at. Maybe to be two weeks past when we're 50% vaccinated so that it's taken hold on everybody. That might be a month from now, but we're, we're really close to there. I wonder maybe about a step down where if you're in a room with less than five people, uh, you don't have to wear your mask, but maybe in a more congregate setting, you know, in a something where you're going to have more of a gathering once we get to that, maybe masks still make a little bit more sense until we get towards that 75% mark. Like I, when I walk around my office, if I'm walking from my private office to uh, to the washroom, I don't know that I really need to wear a mask or walking from my office out the door. Do I really need to wear a mask? But I, I think that if we're still in, you know, if there's 10 or 20 people in a room, like in a school or in, you know, when theaters open back up, maybe masks make sense till we get to about 75%. Al? Uh, I'm waiting for the day things get back to normal. If this is what it takes, let's do it. Let's get it done. Uh, I'll tell you what is getting done is the Gordie Howe International Crossing and the, the ability for the, uh, the residents to be able to take part in some new money rounds as the benefits. There was $20 million uh, set aside. And there are some people that were able to uh, really take advantage and start putting some of their special products in, into fruition. So if you recall back when the negotiations were happening between the, uh, the border and between the, the DRIC project and the community involvement, there was $20 million set aside, 10 for Sandwich Town, 10 for across the river. And it was decided that the $10 million here, there would be different groups and different organizations that could actually petition for funds and there would be uh, an agency that would determine it. So there's more benefits being announced. These are terrific, uh, terrific organizations and their projects are very good. So an overall total $50,000 was awarded. The Windsor Detroit Bridge Authority is the one uh, deciding it. And the project's contractor is Bridging North America. And together, these are the new announcements. You've got the Essex County Black Historical Research Society going to receive $25,000. And this is to help create additional films and accompanying materials. And, and we're reading, by the way, from the Dave Battagello article, who, by the way, from day one, from 2003 on, 
Dave Battagello has been the best reporter anywhere in Windsor, Essex, on top of the anything to do with the, the border, anything to do with the crossing, DRIC, the funding, you name it. He's the point guy. He knows the story from start to finish. Um, another piece of announcement is $10,000 for the Women Can Summit series. Um, again, for Sam, you know, primarily for Sandwich Town, John McKinley Children's Center, $8,400. They're going to construct a new accessible ramp. And you've got the Windsor Police Services Community Services Branch. This is in partnership with New Beginnings, $6,600. And this is going to go to the Sandwich Community uh, Diver City Barbecue event. And again, they're dipping into the $10 million fund. And personally, I'd like to see a large chunk of it to be involved towards tourism, advertising, promotion, billboards, try to get the Americans to come over and actually come to all the great venues. And I think that's coming afterwards. So first they're creating all the extra venues and then they're bringing them in. But Sandwich Town is, is its own little niche. You saw what happened with Walkerville area getting kudos as one of the best up and coming uh, niche neighborhoods in, in Ontario. This can happen for Sandwich Town as well. Yeah, so this is a this is certainly a good news story, and one of the benefits that's coming out of the Gordie Howe Bridge. This is this community benefits concept, um, and I, I know that one of one of the pushes here is that the these projects are being announced annually, or possibly semi annually, or quarterly. I think it's annually actually with these sort of these fifty thousand uh, dollar tranches of money, along with some of the larger projects that were announced early on. But one of the concerns for some people in the community is, okay, well, once the bridge is built and it's then in existence for a hundred years, the, uh, the, the money kind of dries up. And that's when, that's when the Gordie Howe Bridge is generating funds and generating tolls, um, but there, there's not gonna be these community benefits anymore. And so one of the pushes is for a legacy fund to come from, uh, to come from tolls to allow us to do annually these $50,000 grants. And I know that the uh, Community Benefits Coalition, which I am a member of, uh, which I'm on their leadership table of, is pushing for a legacy fund saying, look, look at how great these projects are, but instead of just doing this for the five or seven years of construction of the bridge, we should be doing this for the 100 years that trucks are gonna be rolling through these neighborhoods and paying tolls uh, to, the, uh, to the government. So great news story, some really good projects that are being funded. But I, I, think, uh, I think one of the questions for the bridge now is, okay, so if this is so good now while you're building this, why not keep doing this when you're actually generating money? Christine? Yes, well, that's an interesting point. I, I am excited though, and I think that some of the projects, if not uh, all, uh, are definitely looking forward and are long-term projects that are looking to become, to make the area a, a tourist attraction and possibly attract uh, uh, people from, from all over, um, in, including the $25,000 that the Essex County Black Historical Research Society will receive. I think that's a great thing. Um, it will help them to create three educational films, the article says, and uh, accompanying materials on prominent historical members of the Black community in Sandwich. I think this is a, a way exactly what we need if uh, it, the next step might be to have uh, a location for a uh, possibly a small museum, something to, to uh, recognize the importance of Sandwich in the Underground rail, Railroad. And um, I think that is, is, um, that would be exciting. Um, another one, uh, I mean, there are many things that are very worthwhile, and I like that it was shared in many ways, you know, the accessible ramp to the John McGivney Children's Center, uh, very worthwhile, of course, and um, the uh, Windsor Police Services Community Services Branch uh, will receive uh, 6600 towards its Sandwich Community Diverse City Barbecue event which tries to create bonds with the West End community and that focuses on diversity. So many, many worthwhile uh, things. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's a really nice way for the bridge to come into existence by building also bridges with the community and to um, be aware of, of the communities that are going to be most affected by its, uh, uh, by its existence. I just want to add that although we're seeing projects using up this $10 million and we see it as a good thing, and it is, I don't think the deal 
that was negotiated for the betterment of Windsor was the best deal. I think we could have negotiated a lot more than $10 million. I think we could have negotiated something that was more generational, some piece of the toll action. I mean, look at the deal that was negotiated when Caesars Windsor came, okay, and the city gets a percentage. I mean, this is the type of deals that are legacy that's ongoing, not just one time. So we'll see what happens. I'm happy the projects are going forward. It's important for Sandwich Town to get the recognition that they're the ones technically sandwiched between two bridges and they should be receiving fundings, certainly tolerating the pollution, the noise, the rumblings and so forth. Um, so Al, does this mean that you are supporting the NDP and Brian Massey's call together with the Community Benefits Coalition's call for a legacy fund from the bridge? You, we're talking about tolls, a piece of the toll action. Yes. That, that's, that's not a Brian, Ma that might be a Brian Massey initiative, but he didn't, certainly didn't think of it. Every business person in the city thought of that. I thought of that 20 years ago. Anytime some new thing comes to the city, shoot, when I was advocating, I was like, let's put a toll on Huron Church. You got to stand up for Windsor first. Windsor is the one that's the border town and it's our community that is, you know, hosting the international truck travel, a third of the, the North America goes through here, 10,000 trucks per day. So yeah, more money for Windsor. I don't care who wants to take the lead on it. All, every MP should be in favor of more money for Windsor if you're from this region. At, at the end of the day, the, the money set aside, that's good. We negotiated, it's gonna help Sandwich Town. I would always like to see more money from Windsor when we are servicing all of North America. Speaking of Sandwich Town, by the way, uh, everybody knows that Sandwich Town is a historical uh, heritage designation, many properties with, with specific rules on it. And something interesting came up. This is a Brian Cross article. So just June 15th, just yesterday, amazing, quote, sandwich street renovation runs afoul of heritage. So the problem is, and I mean, this is how picky it is, where th there's a conversion going on between commercial and residential and different uses have different aspects of how you would design it. So if you're changing to residential, you don't want a window in the shower or in the bathroom where one otherwise would be. But if you're starting to change the outside facade, you're running into heritage rules. And people would argue, well, okay, what about the taste of the window? What about the structure? What about the bricks? What about the facade of the structure? Isn't it improved? Does it meet the neighborhood? Does one window really make a difference? And I got to tell you, sometimes people see heritage designation and the investors run for the hills. They want nothing to do with it, especially when they see stuff like this. It's, it's important that the committees have a little bit of latitude and aren't stuck on what the building was 100 years ago. Okay, if 90% of it is about the same and, and now it's being used for its new usage, that's better than worrying about every little brick and window and stone and so forth where the spirit of the, of the structure is now utilized better to what normally is used and still looks the same. So my advice to the committee, is respect the investors, they're trying their best, let them function, let them work within it, and don't be so stringent. Yeah, so let's set up a little bit about what happened here. So this is a building that's next to the Dominion House, and in the upper level where they're gonna be putting residential, there were like three or four windows on the side wall, basically fronting the Dominion House parking lot. So not even something that you see from the street, it's something that you see from the parking lot of the Dominion House. and. The middle window is going to be a bathroom now. And so the, uh, the developer basically bricked in that window and they hadn't applied for a heritage alteration permit uh, to, to brick in that window. I think that they had a heritage alteration permit for the building, but didn't have, but in the, uh, the specs that they delivered, it hadn't included taking out this, uh, this, uh, this window. So the, uh, the, the heritage planner for the city, who I think frankly has been a little bit aggressive, uh, younger heritage planner, and I think is a little bit aggressive on things where, where she sees somebody sort of doing and asking forgiveness rather than asking permission, permission said, naughty, naughty developer, you didn't get permission for that. And now we're going to make you uh, unbrick your window and leave the, leave the heritage window in this bathroom staring at the person who's uh, on the john. Um, and so the Heritage Committee commit considered this yesterday, and I think it was a six to four vote. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, the, the members decided, no, we're going to give them the, uh, the, heritage, uh, the heritage alteration permit so that they can brick in this window. I have to say, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, 
Chris Holt and Reno Bordelin, who sort of lead this committee, who are two of the counselors on it, and I think have often been overly aggressive on heritage issues. I, I was I, I was pleasantly surprised by their approach to this one, which was to say, yeah, this wasn't a developer trying to cheat. This this isn't even a heritage building. It's a building in a heritage zone. And so there's no heritage value to this window that got bricked in. And so they ultimately agreed that despite the recommendation of the heritage planner to deny the request for an alteration permit, that they would grant that. Uh, and I think some of the lay members of the committee sort of wanted to follow the recommendation of the heritage planner and oppose that. But ultimately, the committee has passed it. It'll go to council now. And given that even uh, Councillors Holton Bordelin supported this. I think that this will pass uh, quite probably unanimously at City Council and uh, and some of the red tape that's here that was being supported by a heritage planner will get sort of pushed out of the way. Christine? Yes, well, it's interesting because I feel a, a little bit uh, conflicted. On the one hand, I find that uh, it's nice to have heritage buildings, absolutely, and so on. However, it can also be suffocating. It can suffocate in the sense that it can stifle uh, just progress and, 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 and modernity and, and just, and so really, I mean, I, I just look back on my experience in Paris where in fact, everything had to stay as is in, in many quarters of the city. And um, it was really uh, very heavy to carry this heritage and it doesn't allow for the creativity of the next generation, doesn't uh, allow for the uh, modernity and the, the, the dy dynamic ideas of a new generation of, um, of architects and, uh, and, and, and uh, developers. So on that front, I really think that we have to uh, be careful when we have uh, heritage designations that it doesn't stifle the excitement of new because uh, really, uh, to be quite honest, new uh, young people do not really want to live in just old things. And frankly, if you look at the picture here, uh, that side, those those windows are old, and they're not supposed to be changed. They're actually ugly. That is my opinion. I know that's not everybody's opinion, but I find that those older windows that were made because of lack of insulation are not aesthetically beautiful and that we can do much better today. So in fact, we could meld both the new, uh, the new improved windows of today with the old, the, the beautiful facade is already there and it is uh, showing off the, the authenticity of the of the age of the building without having to weigh us down and weigh people down into the old, the old that is, is ugly and that is, uh, and so I would also say that in fact here, I would suspect that the, the, um, the people who were renovating cheated and they probably did rightly so, probably did um, you know uh, decide uh, that they needed this space. It had to be used in a certain way. They couldn't really have a window and 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 people uh, using the bathroom, so it had to be done. Um, but of course, it has to now. Now it looks, of course, a little bit lopsided with uh, the 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 lack of window. So it'll have to be somehow uh, reintegrated with uh, appropriate, uh, uh, you know, a, a facade. But all this being said, is I think we need to 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 combine the two and not restrict it to. To uh, to completely stifle the imagination of of uh, developers and and uh, architects. Christine, I thought when you, when you said you were conflicted, I thought you were conflicted because on one hand you uh, you thought these people should be allowed to build what they wanted, but on the other hand, when you walked out of the DH, you wanted to be able to see that person on the john. So uh, so turning to another heritage heritage alteration permit story, as well as downtown development news. There is a story in uh, the news about two actual hurdles that have been overcome for projects that Reese Trenhill is working on downtown. One is the Canada building, and he's received a, uh, a uh, approval under the CIP for, uh, for a large grant for converting part of the building to, uh, to res residential. And then the other permit that he needed was the, the Knights of Columbus building on, or the old Knights of Columbus building on uh, 
between Olette and Palisher has an old gym with an old wooden floor. And somehow that got a heritage designation permit and the floor has turned into absolute garbage. People were, uh, I guess, hammering a linoleum floor over top of it. It's a mess, but again, because of this heritage designation red tape, you couldn't even tear that out without a uh, without an alteration permit. Now that was, I think, less controversial. Everybody knew that that had to go. But so two exciting projects that uh, that Reese is working on downtown, and uh, more good news for downtown. Any thoughts on uh, on these two developments, guys? Al, whenever you've got people ready to invest millions of dollars to improve things, get out of their way, give them the benefit of the doubt, have some oversight, but don't be so rigid and things will get better. I mean, you go back to that sandwich building and said in the story that actually it was on, on the verge of being torn down. Where's your heritage there? Good, thank goodness we found people who said, okay, we'll respect what it was, but give us a chance that it could be used to make some money. I mean, these people aren't building museums just for people to look at, okay? They have to be used for something. So trust the developer, trust the renovator, give them some latitude and don't put up these hurdles. Let it, let it move forward, at least in a reasonable way. It may not be exactly the way it was. It make it sound like the people who built 100 years ago, they knew perfectly where every window and every flooring and everything had to be, oh, don't touch it. It's ridiculous. You got the essence of the heritage and you got the essence of the structure. And I do admit in a lot of ways, 100 years ago, they did build it a little bit more solid with their overall and the design and stuff. But on stuff like this, it just bothers me when developers are running into red tape and the hurdles, as they call it, and it just scares away people. So I'm happy at least these ones were averted. Hopefully the one on Sandwich Town gets averted as well, and let's move forward. We are lucky to have investors and renovators come in and improve projects like this. Christine, do you have memories of like going to the sock hop at this Knights of Columbus and important memories of this, uh, this apparently very important wooden floor? No, I don't, but I like wooden floors. I really enjoy wooden floors. I, I think there's a limit to how much you can renovate them. At some point, um, new modern uh, wooden for floors can do the trick as well. However, I would say that um, I have been really impressed with some of the projects that have, um, have, come, have popped up in the last years. The Armory downtown, the library in Sandwich, are, are examples of, of beautiful, um, inventive, creative ways of using the space and also um, giving a, a modern feel to old buildings and being respectful of that heritage or of the, of the um, you know, the age of the building. And I think that's exciting. And that's what I hope that will happen with the, this uh, building, the Knights of Columbus uh, building downtown. Speaking of excitement downtown, we had an a exciting weekend from, I think, from Thursday, well, Friday morning at 12.01 a.m. Um, the patios were allowed to open across the city. So I know I went out Friday night into Saturday morning at about midnight to, uh, to the Goat in LaSalle and enjoyed their patio for a pitcher of beer. It's the first time I've been out for a pitcher of beer in 15 or 17 months, I guess now. Uh, feels like forever. Um, but all across the city, there were packed patios and there was uh, excitement. So uh, what about you guys? Did you get out to a patio? Any thoughts on these patios, Christine? Yes, well, I'll just say that I saw on, uh, on, on Saturday night, I guess it was, uh, but uh, pretty early because I went to my daughter's and uh, she's close to Erie Street. And Erie Street was just, just thriving. And, you know, it'll be something uh, to write about, but really... I think the COVID period has really changed the, the, the way we look at patios and so many patios have come up and I think they're going to be there for a very long time. And I think people are really enjoying them and they have, uh, they're a beautiful addition to our, our city. They have also, um, uh, they also uh, engage the, the city for weekends to be more, more um, pedestrian friendly so that they block off sections to make the patios even larger and to allow people to, to walk around and just enjoy themselves, talk to each other, see each other, meet, in each other, meet up again. And I think that's, I mean, it was in the air. It was just exciting. I could just see that, uh, but this was already early. This was around four or five o'clock and things were really exciting already. 
Alabama. Yeah, it's it's great that we got the patios open. I think we are done with lockdowns. It's over. I think it's over. Like it's just no one's going to go back to it. I mean, the mask, the vaccines. You look at baseball games. You look at soccer. You see the Olympics on TV. It's over. How on earth are they going to go back the wave? It is get the herd immunity going. It's over. Let's just keep going open. Uh, Doug Ford put open the reopening plan. I could see it following exactly to that. And that's the end of it. COVID's done. Unless some new crazy variant comes in and recesses it. But I think for the most part, it is over. Well, it is, it is nearly over, I think. But we are going to talk about one more vaccine story after the break. But we are going to take our break and we'll be back in just a moment. And we are back. And as I mentioned in the first half, we were going to talk briefly about vaccines being back in the news. And the uh, mayor had some comments this morning on AM800. Um, and he indicated that he had concerns with, uh, with Health Canada's recommendation to allow people to mix AstraZeneca and the mRNA vaccines. So if you had your first dose of of AstraZeneca, you can now get uh, Moderna or Pfizer. The mayor said that, well, that might be what Health Canada is saying, but the uh, CDC in the U.S. is, is opposed to that. The mayor, the mayor had, was critical of, of that going on and cautioned, uh, and frankly, I, I think cautioned people from, from going that route who have had AstraZeneca of now going to a Pfizer vaccine. So I've got some thoughts on this uh, and the mayor's comments in particular, but Al, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on this? So yeah, the, uh, the mayor, I think, is reading off a referral of the CDC, whereby, you know, it contradicts a little bit what the Canada Health Agency said. So I think that the mayor is, you know, read, saying what he said. He said he wasn't a doctor. He said that, you know, he's referring to this. I mean, it's up to people to decide and it's up to their doctors to decide. At the end of the day, I think the goal is the same for most. They want to get their second dose. The mayor certainly is advocating for more dosage. He's got a terrific idea with, uh, you know, having assistance from our friends across the border with the tunnel. It's been a very, very interesting dialogue. And the mayor actually was on with uh, Evan Sullivan on, on CTV question period on the weekend. So he's getting a lot of exposure. I think he's carrying himself very, very well, speaking from the heart, caring about Windsor. And he's also doing the town hall sessions right now. So good, good for Mayor Dilkins. I think he's doing a very good job. Christine, you agree with the mayor's comments? Disagree? Should he set it? Should he have not? What are your thoughts here? Well, I think he voiced what many people were very concerned about. And I think the fact that there is a disagreement between scientists of one side of the border and the other shows that um, maybe it is uh, much more complicated than, um, uh, you know, than, than people are saying here and telling us, uh, yeah, just go ahead, go ahead. As it turns out, I have had one of each, uh, including AstraZeneca and then the, um, uh, the Pfizer vaccine now. Um, it turns out that it may not be the, the best thing. In fact, it was something that I asked the, uh, the uh, person uh, giving me the shot. I asked uh, whether that was, uh, you know, uh, a good thing or whether it was even something that would be suggested. And I was told that there is no problem. Uh, Dr. Musage, I think it was, no, Dr. I don't Dr. know. Was it Dr. Musage who said no, that? Dr. Ahmed, I think. Ahmed, okay. Musage Dr. is not a doctor. Let's let's be clear on that one. Okay. Well, uh, it said that uh, Ahmed said that there was no problem, um, and that in fact uh, the important thing is just to get vaccinated. Um, certainly, I have not heard uh, of problems with the two, but again, uh, the fact that the uh, uh, that in the States, this has been seen as a problem and that uh, people are counseling against it seems to indicate that there are uh, questions that have maybe not been answered. Certainly uh, with AstraZeneca, some of the questions came uh, after a while and certainly that was the case. I think, as you said, Al, people need to decide for themselves and uh, be counseled by their, their physicians and uh, you know, I think that there is no bad vaccine per se. Uh, there are people who may react to certain ones or, or, or have uh, issues and uh, that you have, to, you have to do what is best for your own body. So, so I think that the mayor's leadership throughout COVID has largely been excellent. 
I think that his push to get vaccines from the U.S. has been strong and, and smart, even with proposing the crazy things that we were proposing on the show, like, well, let's do it in the middle of the tunnel. So I think that leadership has been very strong. But I actually disagree with uh, with him uh, raising, e even if I may agree or, or not agree with his, the actual his actual view, I actually disagree with him, uh, with him giving his comments to basically discourage uh, the, the vaccine mixing because Health Canada has said that this is okay. I recognize that the CDC has discouraged it. And of course, in the US, they're in a different place than we are in terms of their vaccine availability. Uh, and so that may be a factor in what the CDC has done. But frankly, the mayor is not a health expert. Uh, he's not a doctor. He is a politician and a lawyer. And, and I don't think that it's helpful to be getting mixed messages from you know the medical authority saying one thing and then a politician saying something else. So in my view, I, I think the mayor, frankly, should have kept his views to himself on, on this one. Um, I, I don't think that it was- But helpful. he referenced the source, Daniel. He referenced the CDC. So if a person is able to get the same company dosage and and the mayor says, hey, you know, you may not have heard that, you know, just you can. I mean, it's not a big deal to share information. What's wrong with it? Let the person make up their own mind. He referenced well, the in, in this case, the reason that the reason that he has this platform, the reason that we hear from him every week or twice a week on AM 800 is because he is in the seat of the mayor. And so I, I think it's important that you don't have that this is this is a health authority issue and what you do when you when you do this against what the health authorities are saying is you create vaccine hesitancy and i think that the worst thing that we can have at this point is vaccine hesitancy so i i don't i think that you know in in the same way that i don't think that it was appropriate that um dr ahmed criticized the city for shutting down the buses and dr ahmed should have stayed in his lane on the bus issue, I think the mayor probably should have stayed in his lane on the vaccinations issue. Maybe he owed him one and now they're even. Well, maybe maybe he did. Maybe that's what this is. All right. So we know that the, uh, the city of Windsor has the new pilot project and it's effective in Ward 1 and effective in Ward 2. And I think the main reason it came about was primarily because of the issues around the Sandwich Town, Windsor West area near the university. People said, well, if you're gonna put a pilot project there because of the post-secondary education uh, facility at University of Windsor, well then in all fairness, it should be in Ward 1 as well because St. Clair College and there's a lot of South Windsor homes that have apartments in their basements. Mind you, those are built a little bit newer and you know the height of the ceilings are better and the safety is better and they're brick and better structures and so forth in a lot of cases. So, but nonetheless, okay, fair was fair. So they made the pilot project for the rent registry for these things to minimize slumlords, which in my view, and from what I've been seeing in real estate is probably about 10 to one in Ward 2 versus Ward 1. So in my opinion, this pretty well is the Ward 2 issue. And it was touted as a safety issues, get rid of the slumlords, they shouldn't be making seven bedrooms in a single family home and getting rid of the dining room and the living room and shoving in bedroom, bedroom, bedroom and charging $500 each. I totally agree with that. Also, you know who else agrees with it? The building code, okay? But apparently the building code doesn't have enough authority to go in on violations. That's why they wanted a rent registry license. I thought it should be handled totally differently. The way I spoke at city council three years ago about it, letting the building code and letting complaints be the guiding force. Instead, now everybody's affected by the rent registry as a pilot project or soon to be once they implement. And as I predicted, investments, especially in War II, are down. They are down because investors have been carrying that neighborhood for valuations. And the vast majority of them are great, but the few that give the bad name, those are the ones that have been cracked down, but this bylaw is going to be effective for everybody. So the story came out of the uncertainty for many investors. And, you know, it seems like the counselor in, in War II, Fabio Costante, seems happy with it. He likes the fact that, you know, slumlords are going away. But mind you, investors are not necessarily always slumlords. Okay, there, there are people who are looking to invest money to renovate. You don't want the, the neighborhood values to go down in general. And this is a negative reaction that's gonna be blanketed with negative media 
on the ward. Now, as soon as this pilot project happened, I'll be straight with you, I did not have any of my investor clients invest in ward two. I wouldn't even show them and say, okay, if you want to, but just know about the rent registry. So we're not buying. And I do have a beautiful listing actually it's set up single family. It's going to be sold, uh, listed up for tomorrow. But I mean, aside from that, I'm staying away from ward two. Why, why, why would you, why have the red tape? Why have the bureaucracy? And this might level off some prices in ward two, put the regulations in. We're going to see what happens, but it's, it's really weird. You've got the whole city and then you've got these two areas, mostly ward two, that's going to be affected. And we're starting to see the articles even before the final bylaw is, is shaped into it. This is extremely, extremely interesting uh, how this rent registry license is, is coming into play in the comments and the feedback. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, so I, I don't, I mean, the the message that the, the CTV article was pitching was some, uh, some landlords are basically saying, well, I'm going to sell off my, instead of adding in three more bedrooms, I'm going to sell it off and let it go back to being a single family home. And, and, and I think that's what we want. We, we want that. We want it single family. We don't want it to be all messed up. We don't want overcrowding. But we also don't want investors to say, I'm not going to buy anything in War II. I'm not going to renovate even a normal project. And that's what I'm afraid is going to have a negative repercussion because, because of this license that blankets everybody, not just not just the good land, not just the bad landlords, but the bad, good landlords too. Well, but I think right now, housing prices are so high across the board in the city. I mean, you know what a, you know what a house that needs to be gutted is going for in Ward. I mean, a house that, that needs to be completely gutted, a two bedroom house in Ward two that needs to be completely gutted is going for 250 to 300,000 bucks. So if ever there's a time that, that you can do this and, and return the neighborhood to single family homes, I think now is the opportunity to actually do it. Now, I think the more controversial thing is when that article came out, I saw Councillor Costante shared it on social media and said, good, what we're doing is working. And, and I, I think that the risk that you run there is the concept behind the RRL to make it legal has to be, we're doing this for safety, not we're doing this to get renters out and to get, and to get owner occupied. In. Yeah, and, and we're also not looking to deplete housing values in your neighborhood because that negatively affects you know people who own homes. Uh, you can't control the market with legislation in such an, an effective way and be so lopsided on it. If well, safety, I guess it depends on what's better for a neighborhood, a house that's worth $300,000 that's owner occupied or a house that's worth $400,000 that's got eight kids living in it. But, but what matters is the building code, as long as the building code is being followed. And the whole question of this rent registry had to do with the building department apparently was unable to enforce the building code with the current laws in the book. So therefore they needed the rent registry to be permitted for everybody in order for them to get in. And then, then you'd have to deal with the building department. And that's the problem. And, and good renovators will build and do renovations to code. They will put in the one hour fire rated. They will not over occupy. The house actually I have listed originally was five bedrooms. It was a five bedroom house. They took the living room and converted it into a bedroom. My investor, great renovator, smart guy, engineer, works with me doing things to code. We actually tore down that bedroom and made it back to a living room. And well, we're Al, Al, maybe, Al, maybe what's going to actually happen here, though, is what you're mm -hmm. going to do is you're going to scare off the, there is going to be movement in the market. You're going to scare off the slumlords and they're going to be selling to the people who are prepared to follow the rules. So I you, hope so. I, I, maybe, maybe. I rules. mean, this is, listen, we're going to see what happens. So we're going to see how this plays out. Three years yeah. ago, I said it wasn't necessary. Let the building department enforce the building rules. If they're somehow their hands were tied and now this is the only way, we'll see. But if the negative effects are that valuations deplete or now we have abandoned property, nobody wants to invest them, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Christine, your thoughts? Yes, it's just that I don't understand why the building code couldn't be enforced. That that just boggles my mind. Exactly. Um, certainly, that's, that's the one thing that I don't understand. Um, I have in, in very simple terms, you don't have rights of entry. Without a registry, you don't have rights. Of, you don't have rights of entry. So a building inspector cannot go in the house. That's that's in simple terms. That's why it can't be enforced. Okay. I, I just um I just would yeah uh, I I guess I don't understand that I yeah I I so that's a, a big problem. Um, basically, all that needs to happen is for the building code to be uh, enforced. And if that this was the only way, but it will it will affect negatively. I, I had uh, predicted that. 
I also think that uh, to get families in that those neighborhoods, you need schools in the in the ward one. In, uh, for example, the area around the University of Windsor, you do not have schools anymore. They were all uh, basically closed in the late uh, in the 80s, 90s. So you don't have schools there. So really, until the schools come back, I don't see why families would uh, settle there, really, uh, except for maybe working uh, in that area. Uh, but otherwise, really, it's not a, a family friendly area. And um, yes, of course, you want uh, housing to be better for the individuals, uh, you know, uh, renting, absolutely. And that has to be enforced. So I, again, I don't understand how the law became uh, something that can't be enforced. I, that just boggles my mind. Well, Christine, you teed up the segue perfectly for me because one of the reasons that some people say that the West End is not family friendly is not simply the lack of schools, but the lack of community centers. Of course, we had College Avenue Community Center closed a few years back. And we've had this issue with 80 Knox that has come up two or three times closing the pool. Uh, we taught, we teed this up last week. It is in the news again this week. It's gonna be at least a three week story because I expect it to be the big issue at city council next Monday. Few more articles this week and the report, the actual report to city council was tabled this week. Uh, and on Friday after the report, uh, Ann Jarvis had an article out and the title of the article was we need this west side promise in writing and i think that this is a very interesting uh interesting take uh, most of the noise about this issue has been just the issue of the pool and should the pool stay at 80 knox or should it go and we covered that issue last week but when the when the report to city council came out this week what's notable about the report is the mayor's been pitching this concept as well we'll move the pool but we're going to spend 42 million bucks on 80 knox the challenge with the report is it's a proposal to move the pool immediately or move the pool and close the 80 Knox pool as soon as the pool at uh, at the uh, at the St. Dennis Center or whatever we're calling or whatever we're calling the university pool is available. But then in the future, do this $42 million investment at uh, at 80 Knox. We're going to apply for this grant from the feds. If we don't get the grant, who knows what happens with the uh, with the uh, with the investment at 80 Knox, and so what what Ann Jarvis's article focuses on is basically saying, look, if you're going to move the pool, if you're asking these people to have their pool moved, you have to commit to actually doing the investment at 80 Knox. And, and I think that this is an important nuance because we're seeing this shiny object of oh, 42 million dollar plan, but if there's no money actually in this report, there's there's no funding source in this report to say where that money's coming from other than we're going to apply for 13 million bucks from the feds, you run into a situation where it, you know you could close the pool and then you're asking for new investment. And, and it might be that you could get counselors now to say, well, we will invest money now as part of closing the pool and saving money that, and saving money now. But once you close the pool and then you come back in two years and ask for new money, I mean, that's a, that's a hard ask to get other counselors to spend on. So that's what Jarvis's article focuses on. I think it's a good article. Christine, your thoughts? Yes, well, I think she's right. I think uh, there needs to be something that comes there. It's a beautiful park around it. Um, the idea of having courts, whether they be tennis courts or pickle courts or some kind of uh, uh, courts for, for the, the uh, environing uh, uh, you know, residents is very important. And uh, but I have to say that uh, the actual pool, I don't understand because the pool is going to be absolutely first rate and what uh, the residents will be able to access is a state of the art pool at the University of Windsor. So that part I don't understand, but I do understand that 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 space that is a communal space that is uh, both uh, park and recreational a space that was used by the neighborhood needs to remain and needs to be updated so that that monies need to be earmarked for that whether 42 million will be available maybe that's just something that you know was kind of a pie in the sky since in fact it's coming from other levels of government but maybe the government the uh, local government could already um you know provide a certain number and 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 commit to a certain number that will ensure that this area will not be developed will not be uh, taken away from the residents in that area. Yeah, I, I think that if 
the city committed 20 million bucks now. As part of this plan, we are going to commit 20 million bucks now. We're going to apply for this federal grant. And one way or another, we're putting shovels in the, if it has to be limited to 20, the best that we can get for 20 million bucks, we'll put shovels in the ground now and spend that 20 million bucks. But here's where the money's coming from. I, I think it's a good deal for the West End. I recognize some people don't like it. Some people don't like movement. Some people, I think, are nervous because they've seen divestment in the past. And I think the risk with this report is it talks about divest now and then invest sometime in the future. And, I, and my view is, okay, maybe divest the pool now, but then you got to invest at the same time. Otherwise, you're never going to see the investment. Al, any thoughts? Well, Al told us his thoughts last last week, I think, which was, well, yeah, move the pool, but why do we have to spend all this money at 80 Knox? So uh, well, I, 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 I think Al's content with, ah, punt off 80 Knox. I'm monitoring what's going on. Listen, I do, I do believe this, that if they are making the deal it should be rock solid. The neighborhood has to get uh, it confirmed. I mean, well, there I think... already was misunderstanding, if you recall, when they had the Windsor Water World, where they misunderstood if that was part of it or whatever. And this whole 80 knock thing. Well, was you mean adventure, but you mean the aquatic center, right? Aquatic center, but with Windsor, Windsor, whether Windsor Water World was going to stay open as part of that if they went there. There, there should be no misunderstanding as to what the community deal is. So if it needs to be put in writing and put in the paper, so be it. And, and whatever's being pitched, it sh and if that's what's being agreed to, it should come to fruition. That's all. Yeah. And I think it's very important because in fact, of course, it is in very close or close enough to the university that uh, there would be pressure on that land to maybe transform it into some, you know, housing for the students, et cetera. But I think a community and the local uh, area families also need um, need an area that is for for uh, well a, a pool and, and communal you know uh, communal use. So so I think it's important to keep that. So Christine, uh, you want to take us into moving from deal moving from things going on at the University of Windsor to St. Clair. We love our segues on this show. Tell us about what's going on at St. Clair. Well, it's exciting. I mean, it's it's got to be tough um, during COVID times to be, you know, creating uh, and, and, and continuing to teach. And um, one area in particular would be uh, fashion. And uh, of course, uh, fashion is a big program at the at uh, St. Clair. And uh, normally at the end of a year, the students organize a fashion show. But this year, of course, with with uh, all the restrictions, there was no fashion show to be to be had in the ordinary way way. But lo and behold, they managed to create one nonetheless, one with no makeup, no hairstyling and even no models. That is in uh, the local news from the Windsor Star. And yes, indeed. Uh, this was the challenge that was presented to Elaine Chatwood, the fashion design program uh, coordinator for St. Clair College, and uh, she managed to pull it off. So the way that it's happening is that, in fact, you have um, basically a com computerized uh, um, uh, walkway so that the beautiful creations of students at St. Clair will be uh, robotically uh, going down the um the uh state stage or the um the how do you call it they will be showcased the runway. The, the, runway, the, runway. the runway absolutely so here you have the beautiful creations they are going to be showcased and they will be uh uh filmed and really this is the highlight of course of uh, and and of of a student's uh, year they want to have it uh, shown and presented and, uh, and, and this is what's going to happen. So they made it happen. I think this is fantastic. I think it shows the creativity again and uh, the uh, ingenuity uh, that is, uh, that is uh, at uh, St. Clair. Yeah, Crystal cool. coming out of St. Clair, good for them with this, uh, with this very novel, uh, novel way to create, to do a fashion show in the pandemic, Al? Absolutely, kudos to St. Clair, the whole department, great job. And you know what, it's the innovation that we have to do, but we're hoping COVID's over and next year things all back to normal. So this will be one for the uh, memory books for sure. And in our final uh, news story, we always like uh, to update on election news. Linda McCurdy, who is a local lawyer, she's also a uh, 
a, a track star from her days in uh, university, is uh, running for the Windsor West Liberals in, uh, in the provincial election. So we now have, I guess we now have all three of the major party candidates for the provincial election, which is going to be in until next June. So we still don't, we only have what, one candidate in the federal election, I believe, but we now have, that will probably be in the fall, but we, uh, we now have all three candidates for the provincial election. So uh, we of course have Lisa Gretzky, we now have Linda McCurdy, and, uh, and we have John Leontovich uh, running for the- Le Leontovich, and I, I'll tell you, this doesn't hurt John at all. This hurts, this hurts Lisa Gretzky for two aspects of it. One, Linda and her family have uh, NDP association roots contacts. And two, uh, there are some people who, you know, vote for di different aspects of, um, you know, let's say they, they want to see more women represent uh, representatives in the, in the House of Commons or in Queen's Park. Um, so th this is this is a major vote split, I think, for Lisa Gretzky, uh, more so than it would be for John. I think John's uh, base of support doesn't change anything with Linda running. Um, and I think it, it's just going to take away from from Lisa. It's going to be, I think, a three way race. This one is really one to watch. Uh, John Leontowich is a stand up uh, candidate that uh, is going to have a, a different dynamic base of credibility that's going to come into it. And then, you know, the Liberals and the NDP, it's like back and forth as who's representing. And then it could be the three-way race. Don't forget also Todd Branch, uh, way back when, started off very, very strong. And it's, I mean, there's time for change. We'll see how this plays out. Uh, Linda's a very, very credible candidate. Maybe she'll come on the show. Maybe we could talk to her further about it. Uh, I'd like to know if... <laughs> I don't know, she'll answer completely honestly, but you know, what, what's the views with not running for the NDP or how did she see herself in the Liberals or if the NDP spot was open or if Lisa Gretzky was retiring, would she have jumped into that? Like, did it matter which party or just the opportunity to run and she's kind of like in the middle, so it wouldn't really matter. There's, there's certainly overlap ideological wise with all parties. Yeah, so that's I, my I, thoughts I think that, I think practically, uh, Lisa Gretzky, the incumbent, uh, the NDP incumbent, is still the he the heavy favorite here. Uh, the reality, I think, is that because the NDP are not in government, nobody ever really gets pissed off with them, and then they don't get thrown out. So I, I think Lisa Gretzky is in a pretty good position. You know, we're a year away from the election, but I, I think that Lisa Gretzky's in pretty good shape right now. But congratulations to Linda McCurdy on the nomination, Christine. Congratulations. Yep. Yes, congratulations to Linda McCurdy. And um, yes, I think it's going to be an exciting race. I think also that, um, uh, well, the Liberals, of course, uh, uh, have, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they were really decimated in the last election provincially. So it'll be an interesting, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens this time around. Uh, and, well, it's, it's really questionable how it will all turn out. I'm, I'm, uh, Trusting that uh, the the conservatives uh, have shown their what they their medal during this very trying time provincially, uh, but again, uh, people can be fickle, and uh, uh, a pandemic is a very difficult thing to uh, navigate through and to still be popular at the end. So it'll be interesting to see. And with that said, we are going to close out the show. Thank you once again for joining us on Windsor's Inside Pulse. Please like us on Facebook and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Unlike uh, certain people, we do not have an exclusive uh, Spotify deal, so you can find us on any podcast app. With that said, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great week, and we will see you next time.